We touched on it last week. We started talking about how to put Christ back in Christmas. And we talked about how that has a meaning to it. It's not just a catchy phrase. And it's certainly more than the Target guy whispering to you as you check out, Merry Christmas, under his breath and hoping that his manager didn't hear it. Putting Christ back in Christmas means something. It means that we understand the origins of Christmas. We understand the meaning of Christmas. We understand the miracles of the holiday. We understand the magnitude of the holiday. Well, last week we saw that Christmas had its origins much earlier than the birth account, and that's when we read the Christmas story, two of the Gospels out of the four. So the four Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? And Matthew and Luke have a Christmas narrative or a Christmas story. But biblically, the Christmas story goes back way further than that. It goes all the way back to the beginning. It goes back to creation. It goes back to the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament book called Bereshith, or Genesis as we know it. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've admitted that we're all sinners and that we're incapable of living the perfect life that would be necessary to make ourselves acceptable to God. And if you believe that Jesus, the Messiah, lived that perfect life for us and then he died on the cross paying the penalty for our sin and he was buried and he rose from the dead and he ascended to heaven where he sits by God's side and he promises to return one day and usher in God's kingdom here on earth. If you've believed that and then you've committed your life to Jesus so that you can enjoy God's gift of eternal life together with him, connected to him forever, then you already know what Christmas is. Christmas is a celebration of a savior. It's a celebration of his arrival on earth. It's the celebration of that gift that God promised thousands of years ago, and that was prophesied during the thousands of years that followed. So this Advent, we are focusing on the radical gift of the Messiah, and last week our sermon was entitled, The Radical Rescue. Well, today we're going to look at what I'm calling the radical promise. And again, in the weeks to come, next week will be the radical plan then the radical announcement the week after that, and then on Christmas Eve, the radical arrival. And if you missed any of the messages or you want to hear them again or there's something you wanted to write down, just go to hammockstreetchurch.com and you can listen to that online, watch that online. You can also find it on our app and our YouTube page as well. So let's pray and then we'll jump into today's lesson. Father God, thank you for gathering us together here this morning. Thank you for not just putting together a church, but building a community, a community of people who kind of like each other, a community of people where we feel like we're part of something, where we come into this community where everyone seems to move from somewhere else to be, but here we find a home, and here we find friends, and here we find family, and here we understand the truth about how much you love us and how you want us to tell everyone the same. God, we thank you for our time together. As we begin to look at your word today, we would ask that, as always, you would use it to change our hearts and to change our minds and to draw us closer to you. God, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to start off with this question. Do you know the difference between a prediction and a promise? A prediction and a promise. All right, let's get started. A prediction is a declaration made about the future. A declaration or a statement made about some future outcome. You ever heard anybody make a prediction? Of course you have, right? 
as a society, we're actually quite used to predictions because we're exposed to predictions every single day. In fact, with the internet and with 24-7 television coverage and video coverage and everybody has a camera and everybody's on YouTube, we are, we are constantly bombarded by predictions as well as their politically charged cousins, conspiracy theories. Okay, these are all they are is just predictions. As society, indeed, we, we, we can't get enough of predictions. We, we like them so much that people keep giving us more of them. Think about how much time we spend as a society listening to predictive entertainment and predictive news or reading predictive theories online. Hmm, do you ever think about that? Do you listen to sports programming? Anybody? ESPN, you know, they're talking about the baseball teams and the basketball teams and the hockey teams and the soccer teams and the football teams. That's predictive programming, predictive entertainment. It's all about the predictions, right? Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? Who's going to get fired? Who's going to get hired? Who's going to be the new coach? Who's going to win the Heisman Trophy? I mean, all these, those just predictive entertainment. How about... Political programs, we, we watch that all the time. It's all about prediction. Who's gonna vote? How many people will vote? Who's gonna win? Who's gonna lose? Who's gonna run? Who's gonna retire? It's all predictions. Now, some people, nobody here, of course, but some people follow horoscopes. What's a horoscope? It's a prediction. Oh, well, if you're a Scorpio today, you're gonna be angry. You don't say, really, one time during the day, I'm going to be, oh my gosh, it was amazing. If you're a Gemini, well, today you will look for love. <sighs> I did not read those. Okay, I made those up. Just it, not a thing. Did you know that there are even predictive desserts? Right? You ever think about that? It'd be a great success, both in the business world and in society. Thank you, Cookie. I had no idea. I bet you never thought of a cookie as being a predictive dessert, but it is. And in our normal life, we rely upon, sometimes we put great faith in just predictions. Doctors, for example, make predictions about our health. And we live our lives based on their predictions usually. If you have a financial advisor, your financial advisor is just making predictions about what your money's gonna do. And oftentimes we listen to our financial advisors and we make investments. Government makes predictions about our economy all the time, doesn't it? Meteorologists make predictions about the weather. And though we love them so, more often than not, predictions turn out to be wrong, don't they? Inaccurate. But we seem to be okay with it. Does anybody get really mad and write the station when the weather prediction is wrong? You told me it was going to be 84 degrees and it was only 83. What do you... You don't do that. We're okay with it because we understand... Predictions are an, exact, an inexact science. I mean, yeah, we're watching. We kind of agree and kind of don't agree, but it's an inexact science. We know on some level that this prediction that we just listened to might not be true. So that's a prediction. Now, what's a promise? A promise is a declaration assuring. So you get a little bit more with a promise than a prediction. Assuring that one will or will not do something in the future. A promise is a statement that on its face, at least, is purported to be, is presented as true. 
With a promise, there's an assurance that something will or will not happen in the future. So when a promise is broken, unlike a prediction, when a promise is broken, it's a bigger deal. It's a bigger deal when a promise is broken than when a prediction doesn't come true. Because a broken promise reflects negatively on the person who made the promise, the promisor. And when the promisor makes enough promises that aren't kept, we stop relying upon that promisor. We stop trusting that promisor. But on the flip side, conversely, when a promise is kept, it reflects positively on the person who made the promise. It reflects positively on the promisor. And if a promisor makes enough promises that are ultimately kept, will that person become somebody upon whom we rely? And we rely heavily. In our society, we're also bombarded by promises. However, those promises often turn out to be false as well. Like, think about this. This time of year, starting on Thanksgiving and continuing all the way through New Year's Day, I've heard this to be true. Some people tend to relax their diets just a little bit. Have you noticed that? Maybe a little on Thanksgiving Day, before my turkey, sweet potato casserole, and pumpkin pie had completely cleared my alimentary canal and ended up in my stomach to start its digestion, I saw commercial after commercial after commercial promising that I could easily lose some of the weight that I had packed on this holiday season by eating too much. I saw ads for exercise equipment. I saw ads for fat-burning supplements. I saw ads for that pre-packaged food diet plan. I even saw ads for an online exercise program. All the ads were pretty much the same. They had people just like me who wanted to get back in shape. And, and they reliably informed me that their product would do the trick. But then at the end of each ad, there was this either written disclaimer. You ever notice it? You can blame lawyers for sure on this one. Tiny little print right at the bottom. You can't even read it. Like, what did we do before we paused TV? We couldn't read these things, right? Now you can pause the TV. It's a written disclaimer, or there's this verbal disclaimer where it sounds something like this. Right? Which is just reading the written disclaimer, but really fast. And basically, they're saying, well, <clears throat> results are not typical. So in essence, they're saying, listen, I know we promised you that you'll get your money's worth if you buy this product or take this program or buy this food, but we, we're not necessarily telling the truth, so don't believe us. That's what they're saying. We're lying, but you should buy our product anyway. Do you know what the word virtually means? Remember cascade gets your dishes virtually spotless? Virtually means almost, but not quite. Think about it. So basically it says, oh, you want to get your dishes clean? Buy this. It won't work, but it'll come close. Companies lie to us all the time. And apparently there is no shame in lying to us. It's part of the program. And after a while, when enough of their promises have been broken, we start to think of promises as being no different than predictions, which makes us very skeptical about anyone who makes a promise. Why am I talking about all this? Well, because at Christmas, we are celebrating a promise that was kept, a radical promise, the likes of which had never been seen before or have been seen since. Now, remember last week, we talked about how God entered time and space. Remember, God was in the garden, in the Garden of Eden. He was walking around in the cool of the day, and Adam and Eve heard him. Remember 
how this God entered time and space and he told us how one day he would radically rescue mankind from the penalty of death. We looked at it in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. We called it the Proto-Evangelion, which is the very first gospel. It went like this. I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. You see the difference between those two, right? You get struck on the heel, it hurts. You get struck on the head, you die, okay? Now, in addition to the Proto-Evangelion, scholars tell us that the Hebrew Bible contains, catch this number, because we're gonna do a little math here, and I know it makes people uncomfortable. Believe me, it makes me uncomfortable too, but I think we'll get through it. The Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, makes 450 promises regarding the Messiah that was to come. 450. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that God has indeed kept every single one of the 450 promises that he made about the Messiah. So today, we're going to dig into God's radical promises about the identity of the Savior of the world. Now, we're not going to be looking at all 450 prophecies, because then I'd need to feed you all for the week, set up some beds, and you know, and I don't think you're doing that. We're gonna look at three promises today. The first one, the promised prophet. The second one, the promised people. And the third, the promised place. Now, by the way, if you like this stuff, if this topic interests you, and you wanna look into some of the fulfilled prophecies of the Messiah, there is a ton of research out there. You probably can spend the rest of your natural life reading this stuff every single day. Now, I want to ask you this question. Why is it important? Why do we have to do this? Why are we studying God's fulfilled prophecies? Well, here's why. Because in addition to the miracles that we see every day, if you're paying attention, and the countless blessings that we receive in our lives that should point to the existence of God, the fulfillment of every one of God's 450 promises by Jesus makes the case to an exceptional degree of mathematical certainty that God is who he says he is, and is therefore worthy of our celebration at Christmas. So this is a proof. This is a mathematical proof that God is who he says he is. Now, before we take a look at these three specific fulfilled promises, I thought it'd be useful for us to look at just how strongly the case can be made by looking at these numbers to support the truth of God's promise about the Messiah. How strongly does the math work? Very strongly. It's not an exaggeration to say that scholars have statistically proven the truth about Messiah's, about Jesus' status as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. They have proven to a mathematical certainty. Now, watch this. Now, in one study, scholars considered what's the probability of only eight, got that eight, of the 450 prophecies about the Messiah being fulfilled in one person? What is the probability that eight prophecies will be fulfilled in one person. Here's what they determined. They determined that the odds that one person could fulfill eight, just eight Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, those odds were one in one to the, one times 10 to the 17th power. Now, if you're not much a maths person, we'll go through this. One times 10 to the 17th power is a one with 17 zeros after it. It looks like this. Okay, that's the number. I don't know what it's called. But 
For reference, a quadrillion is a one with 15 zeros after it, and a quintillion is a one with 18 zeros after it. So somewhere between the quadrillion and the quintillion is this number, one times 10 to the 17th power. Now, is there anyone in the room who would not invest every nickel that they have in a company that had these odds of failure? This company will fail only in one out of 10, uh, one out of 10 to the 17th power times. Okay, more than a quadrillion times. That's what you're, that, you take a bigger risk than that eating anything from the fridge. You take a bigger risk than that drinking a cup of milk. You certainly take a bigger risk than that driving your car. You would invest everything. And that's just the odds of Jesus fulfilling eight of the 450 prophecies. Now, if you raise the number of fulfilled prophecies to 48, the odds go up to one times 10 to the 157th power. For reference, a Googleplex is one times 10 to the 100th power. By the way, that's where Google gets its name. So how large is one times 10 to the 157th power? This is really weird, so go with me on this. It would take 2.5 quadrillion electrons. So here's your number. 2.5 times 1, 1 times 10 to the 15th power, 2.5 quadrillion electrons. If you laid them side by side, they would span an inch in distance. If you were to count 250 of these electrons every minute, it would take you how long to count that whole inch worth of electrons? 19 million years. Just to count one inch long line of electrons. You're starting to see the picture here? Jesus fulfilled not 40, not 100, 450 Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. So on Christmas, that's what we celebrate. We celebrate the fulfillment of God's radical promise about the Messiah. And so now, the first of God's radical promises that we're gonna look at is this one. At Christmas, we celebrate God's fulfilled promise that the Messiah would be a prophet. Okay. For God's chosen people, the, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, 2,000 years ago, the topic of the coming Messiah was always on their mind. Judaism, in some aspects, is still a messianic religion, but back then it was all a messianic religion. Their faith was heavily reliant upon the promise of a coming Messiah. Why? Well, it made sense. Jews were an oppressed people, and they descended from a long line of oppressed people. And they knew their history. That's what they talked about all the time. They were well-versed in their scripture. That's what they talked about all the time. A huge part of their culture was centered around learning from their scripture and studying their scripture and debating God's word from their scripture. Now remember, their scripture is the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew Bible. The New Testament wasn't there yet. So they were studying in Jesus' day from the Jewish Bible, the one written in Greek known as the Septuagint. And as a result, from all this study and all this history, they knew that God promised to deliver them from their oppression by sending someone to save them, by sending a Messiah. So the faithful Jews were always on the lookout for a Messiah every single day. 
And then on one day, this Jewish dissident shows up, and his name was John, and they called him the baptizer. We know him as John the Baptist. And he appeared in the wilderness, and he starts calling on all Jews to be baptized by him. Why? In anticipation of the Messiah's imminent arrival. He says, you got to come get baptized by me because the Messiah's going to be here any minute. So many people flock to see him. Now, Now, it's important to keep in mind this. None of the Jews who went to see John the baptizer had any intention of breaking off and starting a new religion, okay? They had no intention of doing that. And and by the way, they all died thinking they didn't do that, okay? They had no intention of doing anything other than remaining faithful Jews because that's what their Jewish theology told them. There's coming a Messiah. Now this guy, John the baptizer, he says, I got news. The Messiah's gonna be here real soon, okay? In fact, John's words and actions were completely consistent with everything they expected about how the Messiah would arrive. All right, so one day John is in the Jordan River and he's baptizing and Jesus walks up. Now there was a whole crowd of people, so it wasn't just John and nobody and then Jesus walks up, but Jesus walked up. And John saw him and he said this, we read about this in John 1.29. By the way, don't get confused and it is confusing. John the Baptist and John the Gospel writer Two different guys, okay? It's the common name. John the Baptist looks up and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All right, now the very next day, Jesus approaches John again. This time, John has two of his disciples with him. When Jesus arrives, John's disciples stop following John and they start following Jesus. We pick up the story in verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, remember, Simon Peter is Peter, okay? Simon Peter's brother was one of the men who heard what John said, so they were followers of John the Baptist, and then followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother, Simon, Simon Peter, and told him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. So when Andrew made the discovery that fulfilled his Jewish faith, that's who he's looking for his whole life, he ran to tell his brother Simon Peter. Okay, you got that? That's Peter. And shortly after that, Jesus encounters another. He encounters Philip, who's another one of his future disciples. So we go to verse 45. Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus the son of Joseph from Nazareth. All right, so they're both convinced that they have now met the Messiah. Well, how did they know? How were they so sure? Well, they were so sure because they knew the Bible. They knew God's word. They knew that Moses spoke of a deliverer that was to come. And this is interesting. Tucked in the summary of the law in the 18th chapter of Deuteronomy. So remember, Deuteronomy comes along and gives us a summary of what Leviticus told us about the law. So in the 18th chapter of Deuteronomy, talking about the punishment of of false prophets, God, through Moses, gives us this prophecy. Here's this really cool prophecy from Deuteronomy 18. God says, I will raise up a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. Remember, he's talking about Moses, talking to Moses, so Moses also is a prophet. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell the people everything I command him. So what did God mean, a prophet like you, a prophet like Moses? Well, think about what Moses did. Think about Moses' role as a leader of the Hebrew people during their time in the desert. Think about what it meant that Moses was their leader. Okay, who had access to God? Moses did. 
who stood for the very presence of God. Moses did, right? That's what a prophet is. A prophet has access to God and stands for the presence of God. Recall that Moses even went so far as to intercede on behalf of God's people before God. Look at this in Exodus 32. Verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, you have committed a terrible sin, but I will go back up to the Lord on the mountain. Perhaps I will be able to obtain forgiveness for your sin. So Moses interceded for the sin of his people. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, what a terrible sin these people have committed. They have made gods out of gold for themselves. But now if you will only forgive their sin, but if not, erase my name from the record you have written. Moses said, if you're not gonna forgive their sin, take me out too. But the Lord replied to Moses, no, I will erase the name of everyone who has sinned against me. So Moses was regarded as a great prophet and he was regarded with respect and reverence by the Hebrew people. He served as the intermediary between God and man. And Andrew and Simon and Philip and Nathaniel and the rest of the disciples knew that the primary way that the Messiah was to be like Moses was to be a similar intermediary or go-between. In other words, the Messiah was to be a prophet as well. Andrew and Philip's statements that Jesus would be like Moses, only greater, were confirmed by the writer of Hebrews. So now we jump to the New Testament, we see more confirmation of the fact that Jesus came as a prophet. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 3 says this, and so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven, think carefully about this Jesus, whom we declare to be God's messenger and high priest. Verse 2, for he was faithful to God who appointed him just as Moses served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire house. But Jesus deserves far more glory than Moses, just as a person who builds a house deserves more praise than the house itself. For every house has a builder, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant. His work was an illustration of the truths God would reveal later. But Christ, as the Son, is in charge of God's entire house. And when we are God's house, if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope, in Christ. So Jesus fulfilled the promise of being a prophet to his people. It was and remains a cause for celebration. That's one of the things we celebrate at Christmas. God delivered the promised prophet Jesus to his people 2,000 years ago. God's people knew and we know now that Jesus came along and fulfilled God's promise that the Messiah would be a prophet. All right, that's the prophet. Ready to go on to number two? At Christmas, we celebrate God's fulfilled promise that the Messiah would be born of the people of Judah. All right, this is a cool one. Watch this. Go back with me, if you will, to the year 1640. Okay, that's the middle of the 17th century. We're in Boston. That's a picture of 17th century Boston. A couple living in this Massachusetts colony. Remember, Boston was not a state yet in 1640. In this Massachusetts colony, there was a couple. This is a true story. Their names were Samuel and Sarah Hinckley, okay? Now, imagine that the Hinckleys are told that someday, about 100 years in the future, the colonies in the new world where he lived, where they lived, would separate from England and form a new country. 
Imagine that they were told that all of the colonies in the new world would band together one day and form a united group, a United States of America. And in order to do it, they would have to start and then win a revolutionary war against their motherland, the country of Great Britain, who was at the time the world's undisputed superpower. What do you think the Hinckleys would say if you told them that? I think they would scoff, right? Scoffing is this, that's a scoff. They would scoff, right? What if, what if we tell them more? What if we, what if we told the same couple, the Hinckleys, that someday, about 350 years into the future, what if we told the Hinckleys that someday one of their descendants would become the 43rd president of these United States, and his name would be George Walker Bush, and he would serve not one, but two terms. Do you think the Hinckleys would believe it? Then, what if this soothsayer who's going around telling the Hinckleys all these things Next told the Hinckleys that another one of their descendants would become the 44th president of those same United States. And his name would be Barack Hussein Obama. And his father would be born in Nigeria. Can you imagine such a prediction for the Hinckleys? What the heck would they say? Did anyone ever predict that for them? No, of course not. But it turned out to be true. Our 43rd president, George Bush, and our 44th president, Barack Obama, were indeed descended from Mr. and Mrs. Hinckley. That makes 43, George Bush, and 44, Barack Obama, related to each other. Did you know that? They are 10th cousins once removed. How about that? Now, that's impossible for us to predict as people, right? We could never have predicted such a thing. But for an omniscient God? No problem. 3,400 years ago, God made a radical promise to his people that the savior of the world would be born into the family of a man named Judah. And Christmas is a celebration of the fulfillment of that promise 2,000 years later. Remember the patriarch Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Jacob, when Jacob was in his 80s, his fourth son was born. His fourth son was named Judah. Judah was born to Jacob's wife, Leah. Jacob would have a total of 12 sons, most of whom would go on to become the patriarchs or the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. We've talked about how 10 of Jacob's sons, led by Judah, sold Jacob's favorite son, remember his name? Joseph, into slavery. And how God's placement of Joseph in Egypt ultimately led to Jacob's whole family going down into Egypt in order to ride out that famine. Well, just before Jacob's death, he called his sons to his side and gave them their inheritance. And then in Genesis 49, Jacob said this. This is really cool. Judah, your brothers will praise you. All your relatives will bow down before you. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. What's a scepter? Anybody? It's a stick. It's the king's stick. Every time you see a picture of a king, he's got that scepter. That's what it is. So when God spoke to Judah about a scepter, he was talking about the kingship and authority over God's people. The scepter is always in the place of authority. 
as the Bible progresses from Genesis 49, we see that the tribe of Judah produced King David. King David was a descendant of Judah. And we saw that the throne of Israel was to belong to the family of Judah until the Messiah came. Now, it's interesting. The story of the origins of the line of Judah is one of the more interesting stories in the Bible. I encourage you to check it out. I can't share all of it with you. There's not enough time, and there's some young ones in here. I don't want to tell you the whole story because it's kind of PG-13 or R-rated. encourage you to read it on your own. Read about Judah, but I can tell you this. In Genesis 38, you can read about how Judah's descendants were, and you can read about how the child Zerah from Judah's improper relationship with Tamar would stand in the line of Jesus. Well, having studied Genesis 49, God's people knew to watch the line of Judah. And centuries later in the New Testament, God provided us with the details of Jesus' lineage, the accounts of Jesus' family in both Matthew and Luke, 1,800 years later, traced Jesus' line from Judah and emphasized that Jesus was of Davidic descent. He came from David. A minute ago, we couldn't even imagine predicting with any accuracy the events that would take place in the Hinckley family just 350 years later. And here we see not a prediction, but a fulfilled promise of a period of time that was much, much longer. Also, as an additional fun fact, if the Messiah had not been born 2,000 years ago, around the time that Jesus was born, we would never have been able to definitively know that he was of the line of Judah. Did you know that? See, shortly after Jesus' resurrection was in roughly 35 AD, shortly after that, 70 AD, another 35 years later, the Romans came and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And when the temple was destroyed, any remaining records pertaining to who belonged to what tribe were destroyed as well. So since 70 AD, it's been nearly impossible to determine the tribe from which any of God's people descended. We can't know. You can't know definitively what tribe a Jewish person came from after 70 AD. That's a long time ago. In other words, if a person came along today claiming to be Messiah, we wouldn't be able to prove that that person was a member of the tribe of Judah. That's kind of cool, right? But at Christmas, that's what we celebrate. We celebrate God's fulfilled promise that Jesus would come as a king from the royal line of Judah. All right, finally, last point. At Christmas, we celebrate God's fulfilled promise that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. It's interesting. A few years ago, they took this inventory of world cities, and they determined the most important cities in the world. You could probably guess what the top cities were. London, New York, Paris, Sydney, Tokyo, Beijing. Okay, these are the most important cities in the world, according to the survey. Uh, close second, Moscow, Buenos Aires, Toronto, Sao Paulo, very highly ranked. All these are very important cities. And if we took a worldwide survey and we asked everybody, all right, which place would the most important, influential person the world has ever seen come from? Like pick the place he came from or she came from. One of those cities would make the person's list for sure, right? I mean, we would naturally think important people come from an important place. And 2,000 years ago, God's people in the Roman province of Palestine expected the Messiah, the Savior of the world. They expected he would come from an important city as well, Jerusalem or Rome or Alexandria or Athens or Miami or whatever. I see if you're listening. But on Christmas, we celebrate another fulfillment by God of a radical promise. 
The Messiah, God promised, would come from nowhere, come from a nothing town in the middle of a nothing place. The Messiah would come from Bethlehem. All right. It was through a minor prophet named Micah. What's a minor prophet? It's just a prophet that's under 18. That's all. Not true. Okay, don't. It's not true. A minor prophet is a prophet with a shorter prophecy book. A major prophet is a prophet with a longer book. Isaiah is a major prophet. Micah, minor prophet. So Micah, who lived 700 years before Jesus was born, through Micah, God told him that the Messiah would be born in, all, in of all places, Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are, are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. All right, so now we go back to the math. Researchers have calculated that the odds of one man being born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, they determined that the odds that just one random person would be born in a town such as Bethlehem were one in 300,000. The odds of predicting which person that would be 700 years before his birth would be astronomical. Anyone? Want to try to predict today, this will be a fun exercise for us all, the exact city in which the winner of the 2720 U.S. presidential race will be born? Anybody want to take a shot? He'll be born in Fort Lauderdale. I don't know, right? Well, that's pretty much what God told Michael would happen. And God delivered on his promise. 2,000 years ago, defying impossible odds, God fulfilled his radical promise. 2,000 years ago, in a little out-of-the-way town called Bethlehem, a baby was born into the tribe of Judah. And he would grow to become a prophet, as promised by Moses. And he would save his people, setting them free from the sin that enslaved them, setting them free to live eternally connected to the God of the universe. And that person is the Messiah, is the Christ, is the Lord, is Jesus, whose birthday we celebrate on Christmas Day, the same Jesus for whom we give thanks every day. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for our time together. Thank you for really just showing us how solid our faith can be, how solid the evidence is that you are our God, that you are our creator, that Jesus is our Savior. So God, as we leave this place this morning and head back into the flow of the world, God, give us the confidence that we need to tell everyone about you, to tell everyone how you can change lives, how you can, how you can take people from death to life, how you can make this world a place that reflects your glory. God, we are humbled by the fact that you would call us. We're thankful by the fact that you want to use us. And God, we're excited to see how you will work in our lives as we move forward. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.